Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, Come out of the man, you evil, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering in two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had 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 the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat, In the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, rather grew worse. 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were all, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Welcome to the next exciting instalment of uh, Mark that we'll be going through um, in the mornings together. It'd be great if you had your Bibles open with you. We're going to be going through this um, fairly rapidly over the sweep of what's going on. And we're going to be dipping in and out as we do that. So page 839, Mark 435 to the end of chapter 5. Um, before we get into it, I think it would be helpful to do a bit of a recap um, so that we have a good idea of where we are and what's been going on. Chapter 1 of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, Christianity is all about Jesus. Isaiah and John the Baptist point to him, and God the Father commissions him, and Jesus goes out to tell a message, chapter 1, 14 to 2, 12, the message of forgiveness of sins. A message with power, a message that is his priority. And we see that message working itself out as he heals the paralyzed man, proving that he has the authority to forgive sins. And then uh, chapter 2, 13 to the end of chapter 3, we see this message immediately results in conflict. Conflict between him and the religious leaders, leaders who detest his message. Nevertheless, despite rejection, people choose to follow him and his message continues. And finally, last week, we looked at chapter 4, 1 to 34. This message will produce different reactions. Different reactions demonstrated by the three seed parables. These reactions range from rejection to full acceptance, where ultimately there will be a miracle of a harvest of souls who have accepted Jesus and his teaching by repenting and believing in him. And this is where we are as we head into today's passage, looking at the three evidences for who Jesus is. We have the stilling of the storm, 
the healing of the demon-possessed man, and the healing of the sick woman and the dead girl. Now, it makes sense that what we're looking at this morning is what happens next in the storyboard or the timeline of Mark's gospel because of this. If Jesus is delivering a message that concerns the forgiveness of sins, something that only God can do, as the religious leaders mentioned earlier on in chapter 4, then Jesus has to prove that he not only has the rhetoric of the Messiah, he not only sounds like the Messiah, but that he has the ability of this Messiah as well. He has to prove that he is who he says he is. He has to prove he is God's Messiah, otherwise he is a fraud and his message is a lie. And, and that makes sense. Jesus and his message has to stand up to scrutiny. And that's what we see here in these three scenes of incredible power. Jesus proves he is God's Messiah by his power over nature, his power over evil, and his power over sickness and death. And before we go into that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for your word. Thank you for Mark. Thank you that we've been able to go through it thoroughly as a church. I pray that you'd help us this morning, help us to see things that are new and exciting. And Lord, thank you that you leave us with so much evidence as, about, as to whom your uh, Messiah is. Thank you that we can look on Jesus and see what he does, see what he proves by his power that he is able to forgive our sins. Father, for those of us who aren't convinced yet, I pray that this would be really helpful for those of us who are Christians who know these passages so well, I pray that you would um, open our eyes and our ears again. May we see something fresh. May we be convicted all over again by the wonder of the Messiah and his work. Lord, we pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Now, as we go through these three scenes, and, and we're going to go through them quite quickly now, so you're going to have to keep up with me, keep your Bibles open. Um, as we go through these three scenes, I want you to pick out two things. Each time we're going to pick out two things, the outcome of what Jesus achieves and the reaction that Jesus gets. The outcome of what Jesus achieves and the reaction of what Jesus gets. That's what we're going to be looking at in detail. And uh, we start off with Jesus calming this storm. And we know this story so well. We know this story so well. It's the kind of story that is etched on nursery walls. And that's not bad. The problem is, is just that. We know them so well. And familiarity can breed contempt. And if not contempt, then it can certainly breed some kind of desensitization to the impact of the story. We fail to really grasp the shock and awe of what's going on. So let's try that together. Let's imagine really what is going on here. Let's clamber into this boat with the disciples, as this is what they're doing. They're with Jesus, getting into this boat in verse 35. Don't forget they are hardened fishermen. This is literally what they do. It is their life to clamber into fishing boats, to go out on the water, and they are used to bad weather. This is what their job is. But note that they are terrified. This is obviously a desperately bad storm. In fact, the Greek word that is translated windstorm here in the ESV is the same word as hurricane. These guys are desperate. Indeed, they think they're going to perish. Which makes what Jesus does all the more remarkable. He gets up in this hurricane, which makes Storm Gertrude look like a light breeze in the play park. And he says over it, simply with the words of his mouth, quiet, be still. 
and the wind and the waves immediately die down. Now, that is remarkable in and of itself. But what is the outcome here for the disciples? It's found in verse 39. Look at this. Jesus achieves great calm. Can you see that? Jesus has, with the words of his mouth, from the chaos of the storm, from the threat of certain death that the disciples were facing, Jesus achieves great calm. That's it. The result of what Jesus does is dramatic by its simplicity, from utter chaos to great calm. You can almost sense the immediate silence in contrast to the deafening wind, stopped in a heartbeat. But what is the reaction to this incredible event. As ever, reactions with Mark are really important. The question is, what do those who see the things that Jesus do immediately think? What do they think? Well, here we read that once great calm has been achieved, verse 41, they are filled with great fear and confusion. It leads them to ask the question, who is this? And no wonder, to some extent, there's nothing so dramatic as reducing a hurricane to nothing with a few words. But look what Jesus says to this fear. He says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is really important because you see in the grand sweep of the the gospel narrative, and especially in these scenes we're looking at today, there are only two reactions to Jesus and his message. Fear or faith. Are you afraid of Jesus or do you have faith in him? Are you afraid of the things that are going on around you or do you have faith that Jesus is going to get you through? The disciples' reaction is one of fear and not one of faith. Which means that the disciples still haven't quite grasped what Jesus is doing. They've not quite understood why he's here, why, what the Messiah looks like. The only difference now is that they're more frightened of him who stilled the storm than the storm itself. And this fear leads them to ask this very interesting question. Who is this? And this makes sense if you were standing there. That's what you would ask. Who has this kind of power? But there's more importance behind this question because it sets up the entire passage. This is the question that Jesus is answering. Who am I? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's the question we're asking. And here, quite clearly, Jesus shows that he is someone who has supreme authority and power over the chaotic and destructive forces of nature. But the disciples have not got what that means. And so Jesus doesn't finish there. He then shows that he is the Messiah by his power over evil. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Again, terrifying story. Again, if we were to imagine ourselves being in the boat in the middle of a hurricane, we are to imagine ourselves being in this graveyard, face to face with this man who is an utter wreck. He's utterly wretched, out of his mind. His body is convulsing under the strength of these demons, strong enough to tear metal, so at home with evil that he literally lives among the dead. The situation is desperate. 
It is horrifying. And the first thing we see of Jesus' power here is when he steps off the boat, isn't it? This man, these demons, immediately come to him and bow down before him, and the demons utter the name that Jesus eventually wants everyone else to know him by. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The game's already up. They know who he is. The demons are already pleading with him that he doesn't kill them. Legion, the name of this group of demons inhabiting this man, goes straight into begging mode. Have you noticed that? There's no fight. There's no questioning his authority. Legion is terrified. Everything about this scene is a contrast between the horror and the frantic nature of the begging desperate spirit and the calm, quiet, collected Jesus. Jesus is in supreme control. He's not phased. Look at the language concerning Jesus. He gives the demons permission, verse 13, to enter the pigs. How polite. There's no question who's in charge. There's nothing this demon can do without Jesus say so. Jesus has astonishing power over evil. But what is the outcome Once the demon has been evacuated by Jesus into a herd of 2,000 pigs, something that is shocking, in verse 18, we see the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. What a difference. And what a description of restoration. Jesus, again by the words of his mouth alone, has made a man who was the epitome of the living dead, who was naked and mad, into someone who is dressed and in his right mind. There is beautiful dignity here. A man who is almost inhuman kneels before Jesus and is made human again. He is given real humanity, a dignified humanity, a humanity which allows him to stand up with dignity and respect and wisdom. This is incredible restoration. And what a contrast. The disciples have been given great calm out of real chaos. This man has been given real humanity out of real evil. And note the reactions here. And note the begging. There is a lot of begging going on. What do we see of fear and faith? Legion is crying terrified in the face of Jesus, verse 17. Their reaction is one of fear. They beg him not to kill them, verse 12. The men of the village are terrified in the face of Jesus, verse 15. When they see the outcome of Jesus' power, their reaction is also one of fear. They beg Jesus to leave, verse 17. But what of the demon-possessed man? His reaction is one of faith. He begs that he might be with Jesus, verse 18. From fear to faith. From someone utterly fearful to someone utterly faithful. Again, the disciples' original question rings through the passage, who is this? And again, Jesus' response echoes through the passage, don't be afraid. 
have faith. And as Jesus sends this new, restored, faith-filled, dignified human back to the Decapolis to preach about what has happened, Mark moves on as he shows that Jesus proves he is God's Messiah by his power over sickness and death. Chapter 5, 21 to 43. Finally, we come to the interrupted story of the dead girl and the sick woman. And here we meet Jairus, a synagogue ruler, approaching Jesus and imploring him to heal his daughter. Verse 23. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And Jesus goes on to do just that. But on the way, we know that he's interrupted by this poor, poor woman who is desperately ill, heavy menstrual bleeds for the past 12 years. And not only is her condition incredibly undignified and debilitating, but, and this is important, this condition also under the law cuts her off from the whole of the covenant and the community of Israel. Leviticus reminds us that if a woman has a bleed, she is to be separated from the community until her time of uncleanliness has passed and she is declared clean and she is able to re-enter society. This woman is forever cut off from community because she's never unclean. And if ever there's a picture of the gospel, it's here. As in her filthy state, alienated from society around her, unable to come in under the law, unable to see the promise of Israel, she reaches out, she touches the hem of Jesus' cloak, thereby not only making her well, but clean. Not only making her clean, but back into community. With one touch of the hem of Jesus' cloak, she is no longer an outcast. And such is Jesus' power, he is very aware of what has just happened, despite the crowd pressing in around him. And as he confronts her, look at this in verse 33. The woman who, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She is full of fear. Jesus knows what I've done. But look at Jesus' response, verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She goes leaving with faith. And she goes with Jesus calling her daughter. This is so important. Jesus loves her. He does not chastise her for her forwardness in touching him, wanting to be healed. He commends her. And he not only commends her, but he adopts her. Can you see? This is Jesus bringing her into the family that she has been cut out of. She is not only well, she is clean. And she is in family with Jesus. The disciples were given great calm. The demon-possessed man was given real, dignified humanity. This woman was given real health, peace, and inclusion. But before we're allowed to linger on this scene, we're reminded that Jesus was on his way to heal another daughter. And the news has come back that it's too late. She's died. But look at what Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36. Don't be afraid. Just believe. 
Fear and faith again. Don't have fear, have faith. And that faith is shown to be solid. As Jesus, much to the laughter of the onlookers around him, when he says that she's merely sleeping, and he, he says that because to him, he has so much power over death that it is, it is as if she is merely asleep. She's very dead. In the midst of this, he goes to this dead body of this 12-year-old girl and says over her the endearing words, Talitha Kumi, which kind of means, sweetheart, get up. Or more literally, we lamb, get up. Jesus treats this girl as if he were like her father, endearingly, lovingly. Talitha Coom would have been something a dad would say to his little girl. And look at the outcome. She rises from the dead and she walks and she eats. Jesus shows he is God's Messiah by his supreme power over death itself. So those are our three scenes. Jesus proves he is God's Messiah by his power over the chaos of nature, over the horror of evil, over the indignity and separation of illness, and from the desperation of death itself. Jesus also shows us, um, through Mark's writing each time, that he wants to move people from fear to faith in him, from fear of the things around them to faith that he is able to help them. And all the while, with each person he meets and with each act of power he shows, the original question of the disciples rings throughout, who is this? And each time, the response of Jesus is, don't have faith, don't don't fear, have faith in me. But let's stop and take a breather for a moment. I realize we've gone through this quite quickly. Really well done. Now we see what's going on there. The outcome of what Jesus is doing and the response that Jesus gets. But there is something going on here that is deeper as Jesus shows that he is God's Messiah. To see that, we have to go back a little bit. Let's go back and have a look at the language in the preceding chapter. The bit we looked at last week concerning the reactions to Jesus' message. In chapter 4, verses 11, 26, and 30. You'll notice that Jesus is explaining what, and I quote, the kingdom of God is like with each of these seed parables. And here's the thing, and this is why these three scenes of power come straight after the seed parables. Because if us, as readers of Mark, or watchers of Jesus, are to believe that he is ushering in a new kingdom that is accessed through believing in him and following his message of forgiveness, then we need to know what this kingdom properly looks like. We're meant to get to the end of the seed parables and having seen the kingdom of God start in wastefulness, waiting and weakness, as we looked at last week, we're meant to go to the point where we say, well, what does the kingdom of God look like? And the only way we can fully understand what the kingdom of God properly looks like is if we fully understand the king himself. And that is exactly what is happening in Mark 35 and chapter 5. Messiah means God's anointed king. And as we see this king showing incredible power over nature, evil, sickness, and death, we also see what this king's kingdom looks like. A kingdom free of the chaos of nature, evil, sickness, and death. Can you see that? And so this brings us on to our second point and our last 
Jesus is not only pointing to himself as the Messiah, but Jesus is also showing us what God's kingdom will look like. Now, let's run back over the stories again now that we've gone through them, and let's see what is really going on. Let's see what links them all together. The disciples are in the boat, in the storm. They say they are perishing. They think they're going to die. Jesus saves them. The demon-possessed man in the Gerasenus, living among the tombs, is a picture of the living dead. Jesus frees him. The sick woman, whose doctors could do nothing for her, in verse 26, was, as a consequence, going to die of her illness. Jesus heals her and cleans her. And the girl, for whom it was already too late, has actually died. Jesus raises her. Now, what do all these things have in common? Death. All these things lead to death. Note what Jesus undoes. He undoes the chaos of nature, the threat of evil, and the indignity and dirt of illness. What are all these things? All these things are things that have broken into God's perfect creation as a result of the fall, all the way back in Genesis 3. Everything that's allowed to exist because of the rebellion of man and because of our sin. Ultimately, all these things, though, are the arms and legs of the most devastating consequence of all, death. These are all the things that we struggle with in life, and these are all the things that we are, it's a sign that we are living in a world full of death and decay. So in dealing with all these areas of the fallen world, Jesus takes on death itself. Can you see that? And there's a reason why these stories of Jesus happen in the way they happen. He climaxes with the raising of the girl from death, as that's what he's doing all along for the disciples, the demon-possessed man, and the sick woman. He saves them from death and from the fear of death. And the raising of the girl is important. Because if he does not raise her, he could be accused of merely putting off death. Note, with the disciples in the boat, he prevents death. With the demon-possessed man, he prevents death. With the sick woman, he prevents death. But with the girl, we finally see what he's really getting at when he undoes death. He completely reverses it. And this is where we build up the picture of what Jesus came to do, to save mankind from death, not merely put it off like a doctor, but to destroy its very nature, to remove its sting, to snatch away its victory. That's what Jesus is doing. And we see him dealing with death in the here and now of the text of Mark. But, ultimately... Everything that we have looked at today is a mere foreshadow of what Jesus will do. Jesus will finally destroy death with the same power, but at a much greater cost. You see, there will come a time where instead of Jesus looking supremely magnificent in the face of suffering and death, He will fall to his knees in an olive grove in the early hours of a morning and he will sweat drops of blood in unmaskable grief as he faces the horror of having to break the back of death fully and finally by going to the cruelest of deaths on a Roman cross. 
And that anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane isn't because Jesus is weaker in the face of death there than he is here, but because the reality of the mess that we have gone ourselves in and just what Jesus has to really go through to get us out of it. It's devastating. Death is the greatest barrier to God, and it is not defeated lightly. It is not defeated glibly. It is deadly serious. And the place that Jesus has to go to to destroy death for us is a place of unimaginable physical, spiritual, and mental torture. And is ultimately a place of a father's rejection. As he chooses to take on the sin of those who love him, give up his own life, and instead of letting us die, he chooses to stand in the brokenness of our fallen nature, clothes our nakedness, takes our shame, and gives us life. That's the message of the forgiveness of sins. That's what the defeat of death looks like. And with the glory of hindsight, I look back through the lens of the cross at the displays of power here, and I see what is really going on behind it. The future anguish, pain, sorrow, abandonment, torture, and death of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed King. And it is at this moment of history... When the question that the disciples ask in the boat doesn't just ring true, but thunders like a clanging bell. Who is that man? And when I see the Messiah in all his power here, and when I look at the Messiah in all his shame on the cross, and when I look at the Messiah in all his glory in the resurrection, I stand with the executioner who stands at the foot of the cross and say, surely this man is the son of God. That's who he is. Who takes away the sin of the world by breaking the back of death, by giving up his very life, and by taking it back again. That's the message of the forgiveness of sins. Us admitting that we are broken, sinful people and seeing that Jesus is the only one who can do anything about it. And that is what God's kingdom looks like. A kingdom that is free of death. But there is more. Because Jesus did not just come to live so that we may not die. Jesus came to die so that we could really live. And this is the flip side of the same coin. There is something else going on here on top of the fact that Jesus destroys death. And that is that we may gain life. Note what happens to the people in this passage. They are not just kept alive. They are given real life. Transformed lives. Lives that are quite definitively unrecognizable to what they were living before. And this is why the way Jesus treats these people is so very important. He deals with them individually. He restores them physically. He does not leave them as they are. With the demon-possessed man, he is dressed and in his right mind. The sick woman, he calls daughter. With the girl, he speaks over her, Talitha Kum. He befriends his disciples. He loves them all. Can you see that? So important when we go through this passage. 
that we see that Jesus does not use people just to prove who he is. That would be flippant and incredibly insensitive. Drawing people to himself just to prove a point. Jesus treats people's problems really. He really meets their needs. He really meets with them where they really are, in their pain, in their suffering, physically. He sends them out new and afresh to a transformed life. To quote from another gospel, I have come, Jesus says, so that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Because this is what God's kingdom looks like. It looks like a kingdom of real life. Out of the chaos of nature, he produces great calm. Out of the horror of evil, he produces real humanity. Out of the separation and debilitating and clean illness, he produces someone who is healthy and brought into family. And out of the most despicable, inhuman, and final act of death itself, he produces resurrection life. And if we think about it, are those not all the things we so desperately crave? Those are all the things we want, we long for. I want great calm in my life. I want to be clothed and in my right mind. I want to know what it means to be really human. I want a father. I would love someone to call me son or daughter. I want to be well again. I really do not want to die. That's what we crave. Calm, clothing, right minds, dignity, family, community, health, and life. Nothing outrageous, simple things. And Jesus so powerfully, so vividly says, Christian, in this new kingdom, that is what it looks like. That is what you get. This is what the kingdom of God looks like if you have faith and follow me, the Messiah says. True rest, true calm, true humanity, true health, true life. Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea, in this sense, stands for the source of evil. There's no more evil. And I saw the holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. That is what the kingdom of God is like. And this is what we long for. The chaos of nature, the horror of evil, the indignity of sickness, the inhumanity of death, everything we struggle away with, all those former things passed away. Thanks to the incredible cost of the Messiah. But as we close, there is a problem with all of this. Or so we think, because this is not what we see, is it? This is not what my life looks like, and it's not. 
This can be quite hard to take in. There are some of us in this room who are genuinely very ill. There are some of us who are struggling with money issues, unemployment. There are some of us who are scared, really scared. Scared of life, scared of people, scared of the future. Some of us are desperately unhappy. Some of us are dying. What about me? We cry when we read this. My life doesn't feel transformed physically, and I'm a Christian. And if we're honest, we're not really asking for much, are we? All these things Jesus gives to these people, calm, clothing, right minds, health, peace, family and life, yet they remain elusive. And the truth is that this kingdom, as much as Jesus shows what it looks like here in Mark 4 and 5, isn't a full reality until we get to Revelation 21. We're in the now and the not yet phase of this kingdom, and it's hard. It's really hard waiting. And the reason we see Jesus' power here is because he knows it's hard. And this is important because note what Jesus does not say regarding the kingdom of God. He does not say, here is what God's kingdom looks like, and you need to do this, this, and this to get it. He points to himself. And up until the time that he decides that enough is enough, and our suffering has ended, we find our comfort in our imperfect, fractured state in the king, in the Messiah himself. The reaction to the Messiah, what he wants, is faith and not doing. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. The things we hope for and go unseen is that future perfect life in the new creation. The substance and the evidence of that now is found in King Jesus. Messiah who proves himself. That's the now part of the kingdom. The lengths we go sometimes, even those of us who are Christians, to try and achieve what Jesus achieves. Our hunting for calm, humanity, health and life, that's all good, but we're going for them in all the wrong places. We panic about our money and our security. We really worry about our exams and our success. We put all of our time into friendships and popularity and we worry about them. We try and prolong our lives for as much as possible by our fitness and medical advance. And as much as these are all good things, we end up fearing them because they don't fulfill. They all disappoint. Jesus says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of me. Have faith in me. Believe in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We will not achieve the good life now, but as I go through life, as we go through life, worried about the physical world around me, scared in the face of evil and attack, Sick and tired of being sick and tired. 
And ultimately, as we face the very near and real prospect of death, I am able to look at the Messiah, God's King, and see him defeat every one of those fears. And I see him also hanged on a cross to defeat death itself. And in so doing, I see a king of a heavenly kingdom who absolutely identifies with everything that I am going through and who promises what I really desire, a kingdom that is free from death and a kingdom that gives real life. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this glorious truth. Lord God, I really pray that this would have somehow affected us in wonderful ways today. Lord, we know that life is really hard. And sometimes we can look at the new creation with almost a sense of incredulity. Lord, thank you that is why you came. Thank you that this is the now part of your kingdom, that we can now know the Messiah, the one who has power over all these things that we are afraid of. Oh, Lord God, I pray that we would fall in love with you again. Heavenly Father, help us not to be afraid of you. Help us to have faith in you. Help us to believe in you. Help us to follow you so that one day we may truly know what it is like to really live. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.